0: So, yeah, the video kind of, kind of raised, obviously, big philosophical questions, not from a Christian standpoint, and um, there's plenty of follow-up videos if you're like, what are arguments against that? But you probably have uh, encountered different people who have a skepticism about religion. Or skepticism about faith. And some will even push to arguments that were even shown in the video, like how can we know anything at all? Now, that's usually the rare case. Everyone seems to be mostly grounded in the fact that we're not dreaming or in some sort of simulation. Although there are some, if you, if you care to look, like Elon Musk says that he's confident that we are in a simulation right now. That sometime, you know, technology has adapted. Has anyone ever done like virtual reality? Um, If you've ever experienced virtual reality, you're like, yeah, I can tell I'm not in it. But there are senses that you feel where you're like kind of um, let yourself get lost for a moment. Uh, If technology were to get to the point where the graphics you see and even the sensations you feel um, could be mimicked, uh, then, how do we know that we 're not in a simulation, and that 's even where he stands at, he feels like we 're in a simulation again that 's huge kind of big global things if we 're in a simulation, then what does that mean but um why would we believe that we 're in that and uh, not in the reality that we experience now but on a on a smaller case, when we talk about skepticism, even for what we believe, you know we encounter skepticism even about Jesus himself you know um, seems like uh, every, you know, Christmas, uh, I don't know, was it Time magazine? Or I can't remember. Like, you, you see on the cover, like, was Jesus, w- you know, was the virgin birth real? Um, and then there's an article about why people believe what they believe about that. Around Easter, it's usually the same thing in a popular magazine. It be something about the resurrection. It could be questions about, did he really do miracles? Um, and then some even say, did Jesus even exist at all? Or was he a creation of Um, his disciples. And so we're not going to answer that today. That's going to be definitely more than one lesson if we were to do that. Um, But there was a group uh, in the 80s and 90s, and I think even continued on there, that was called the Jesus Seminar. Have you guys heard of the Jesus Seminar? Um, And they actually looked at the sayings of Jesus, and there was like something like 50 scholars, and they were each given like four colored beads. Like the red bead is like, I definitely think Jesus said this. The black bead was, he definitely did not say this. And then there was some sort of like a gray and a pink bead that was some sort of like, he probably said something like that, but probably not exactly that or, you know, some some sort of doubt. And they voted on the sayings of Jesus and even kind of came out with different translations or, you know, their, their own uh, interpretation or their scripture that would show like what they believed was true or not. And just even kind of thinking about, you know, how they would come to some of their, um, those determinations um, kind of led to what the skeptic, uh, you know, would, would say. So First John, we talked last week in 1 John chapter 5, this idea about believing and knowing. We've talked about faith, and faith is the same word, root word, and believing. And believing in Christ, we would say, is more than just acknowledging facts, but there's this deep-seated knowledge that loving God and joyfully obeying His commands strengthens our faith in what John says to overcome the world. And so we saw that John started the chapter in uh, chapter 5 with an affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. And then he ended that that paragraph in our time last last week was seeing that those who overcome the world are those that affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. And so those particulars about our faith are important. You know, you could believe that Jesus is the Son of God but not the Messiah. Um, but then you would say, well, what really do you believe? That would almost be something confusing. Um, On the opposite, you could say that Jesus is the Messiah, but not the Son of God. You might be thinking something more aligned with Islam that believes that Jesus was a prophet, but they definitely believe that he's not the Son of God. And so John is continuing this argument and looking at the details of Jesus being here on earth and how we can have affirmation and even this knowledge of that. And so if you think kind of big picture, you know, if somebody asks, like, who wants to go to heaven? You know, everyone might affirm, like, well, I'd like to go to heaven, especially if the alternative was hell. And then, then if you ask the question, well, well how would this happen? How, how do you get to heaven? You know, most people would have an answer, particularly, hopefully, in our church, we would have an answer, like, how would you get to heaven? Belief in Jesus. Well, why do you believe it to be true? And that's kind of a question, like, I don't know, that's, you know, Scripture says it, or that's what I believe. And John gives a little bit more to this to kind of give an affirmation of why this, may, you know, why this is true. And that's where we start in verse 6. And so in verse 6 in chapter 5 of 1 John, John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Okay, so the way kind of John says this is, you know, maybe not clear on what are you exactly getting at, John. So let's kind of you know, roll this back and, and look at specifically what he's trying to say. So, what is in verse six? What is Jesus? Or so, what is John saying is clear about Jesus? That may not be clear in how you interpret it or understand it. But what does he say right there about Jesus? Jesus was what, and particularly, how did he come? Okay, so it came by water and blood. So that's clear, right? Um, By water and blood. The question is, though, what does he mean by water and by blood? Because he's making these kind of two statements, um, and actually he'll make a third statement, but these things that he's specifically saying about Jesus. So the first one is a little bit of disagreement of being the son by water. So what do you think that could mean? He's the Son by water. Okay. Okay, and that's that's tip, the typical um, understanding of that, and there's reasons for that. That the baptism, like he'll he'll confirm this in a couple of verses when he talks about baptism specifically. And so I I believe this is the context, although there are good grounds to take kind of this other understanding of it, so we'll look at that as well. But, right, you know, God testified in front of everybody that this was his son. Some had said, well, we heard thunder, but others said that they had clearly heard it was the voice of God. There was a heresy, and I mentioned this last week, that was was, um, uh, believed kind of at this time that uh, this idea remember of matter being bad and spirit being good that the spirit of God at the baptism was when the 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 spirit descended in the the form of the dove um, was when God's spirit descended on Jesus and then at that time and then during his ministry his spirit was with him and then before the resurrection or sorry before the crucifixion that God's spirit left him and so this idea that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man from birth. And so that was believed at that time. So John is speaking against that idea, um, you know, in the sense where that, well, he'll t- speak against that sense in just a second. Um, but the baptism is a confirmation of that. How else could you take the idea of the water? It's almost similar, like, to how Nicodemus was confused in understanding. Yeah, and so being born, born, uh, you know, born again—the idea that a woman's water breaks before, you know, so that that idea that there's this natural means—and there's some there's some things about the idea of like that that was attested to through an angel that Jesus would be born, that you know, God's spirit would be on him, and so. You know, because John wrote about Nicodemus as well, there's there's some good evidence to understand that. That would also account against the heresy that the Spirit of God was at with Jesus at his birth as well. And so there's two different ways, you know, again that you can understand that. N- neither are necessarily um, against one another. If you believe one, doesn't like negate the other. It's just what did John actually mean I'll just say I like I lean towards baptism but sometimes I'm like you know the whole water birth thing does you know have some credence so if you feel more inclined one way or the other you can you can take that but in the context baptism does seem what he's specifically uh, referring to but I can see kind of both, both sides to that. And so that's the sun by water, right? Either, either baptism or birth, that there is a confirmation. And you can even say, well, both are true. So it could be water by both means. Usually it's just one or the other, and John probably had one intent. But he doesn't clarify necessarily even further to kind of make sure that we understand that. But then he does say son by blood. Now, what is sun by blood? How do you understand that? Okay. Yeah, and you could take blood as in you know as in genealogy, but that's not how he's talking about it. He's talking about it as the son by uh, the death and the crucifixion that Jesus did die on the cross, right? And uh, it was um, you know that he showed his humanity in dying, but also his deity that he rose again after the shedding of the blood. And so, the, kind of these instances here. Um, are affirmations of who Jesus was. So he continues on and says that we have a, um, a strong basis about how we receive the testimony of men. So how do we receive like or make sure that we know um, something is not just an accusation but more of an affirmation? What does he say in verse 7? Three that bear witness. Now, where is he getting that from? Like, where have you heard that idea, that three three bearing witness about something? Um, yeah. So, in Deuteronomy 17, 6, um, uh, we, Moses wrote, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So, you need to have greater Affirmation. Interestingly, like the next verse says, And the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So not only was it in the accusation, but the people that affirmed, yes, this person was, you know, the lawbreaker, what did they have to do? Exactly, exactly. That's one thing to say, like, well, accuse somebody, and now the other is to, like, flip the switch or you know, be the person who is going to do that. And so uh, that, again, was a part of Old Testament law. Now, Jesus kind of picked up on that, and we've looked at that recently um, in our larger service uh, when he talked about Matthew 18. What was the idea about Matthew 18? When you go to talk to somebody about their sin, what do you first do? Do it privately, privately, individually, but if you can't do it privately or individually, then... Yeah, you take a witness with you. And so it kind of escalates that. And that connection was made that it's kind of the idea that if somebody's not going to be convicted of their sin or shown their sin, that you bring extra witnesses in order to um, bear witness against that person. And so verse 8 shows that in 1 John 5, we shows that we have three witnesses that testify with Jesus. And they're pretty substantial ones. So you have his baptism or his birth, right, so either his visible sign, or you have the virgin birth, either of those are pretty significant, and both of those taken together are pretty significant, which one John's referring to, again, uh, he knows, Um, his death and resurrection, right, that's the next one, that's, again, Paul would say, again, without, you know, everyone believed in his death, that he died, now the nature of how he died, that could be something, again, John is specifically going against certain, a certain heresy at the time, and we only have to believe that could be possible based on how he writes his letter. But the fact of the resurrection, right, we looked at when Paul talked about the resurrection, if we don't believe the resurrection to be true, then we are to be most pitied. And then the third is, what's the confirmation, the third witness that he says? So we've got the water and the blood, and the third witness is spirit. the Spirit. Yeah, the Spirit. And we'll get to the Spirit in just a second. So before we get to the Spirit, uh, in verse 9, you know, um, John almost says something like, he says, if we receive the testimony of men. So what does it seem like people are quick to do? is to receive the testimony of men, meaning that we believe a lot of things based on the things that were taught by other people, or the things, you know, if somebody says, hey, did you, did you hear what happened the other day, did you read in the news, did you see that game the other day, or, you know, whatever it is, if you're like, no, I didn't see it, no, I didn't hear about it, then you believe the person who's telling you based on their account, and so there's a lot of reasons to believe the people unless they have a habit of not telling you the truth, and then you might be like, did that really happen? Especially, you know, uh, how great the story might be. And so he says that there is this tendency, right, that to believe men. And so even at John's time, right, if John is saying, well, there are these people that are teaching this about Jesus, and some of you are really quick to believe this testimony of men, but he's going to argue, right, that, the testimony of god is greater and so even for us as followers of jesus like you might encounter a skeptic who kind of pushes back and say well why do you believe what you believe and maybe you're just believing other people maybe you're just a follower maybe you're just somebody who's like a sheep you know you're not really thinking you're just believing what your pastor tells you and you're not you know believe you know rationally thinking you know, some of those things. You're just really in a cult, and people have made you believe these things. And so, doubt starts to creep in, and there might be even a, a, a tinge of skepticism at the moment. And John is wanting us to go back and say, well, no, we have these confirmations that these things are true um, about Jesus. So how can we know anything to be true? And if you look at the video, you can talk to people that are like, well, how do you know that you're not in a supercomputer or just a brain in a vat? And they're like, that just seems ridiculous to me. But if you want to argue and keep arguing, like I said, there's like several videos with like nine or ten arguments. I stopped watching because I was like, how many are there? You know, because there's always a skeptic that says like, well, how do you even know that to be true? And the skeptic's job is not to like say, well, this is what I believe. They're just poking holes and saying, well... You know, you can't believe anything. But at some point, you have to, like, stop and say, well, this is what I believe. And if believing nothing at all is really true, well, then how does a skeptic do anything? How does a skeptic, like, turn on the car and ha- or turn on the lights or do anything and, and assume, right, that um, they can have any confidence in what they believe about going forward anything in life? It's almost like you should be paralyzed and not get out of bed, But then again, that could be the argument. You're already in bed anyway. But anyway, so how do we know anything is true? John Frame... Wrote in his Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief. I I mentioned him last week. I mean, he's got a whole lot of writing. But just kind of talking about this idea, even like if we say that Scripture is true, then the counter-argument is like, well, isn't that kind of circular reasoning? You know, we need to have like an argument, you know, something. We have to start with reason and not with a book. And this is how he says, he says, if we can argue that the sky is blue, for example, how is it that such argument is possible? If the world is a world of chance, how could anybody agree on anything? Agreement presupposes a world made by God, designed to be orderly and designed to be known by rational minds. You can see that this kind of argument is presuppositional. It's appealing to the true knowledge of God that unbelievers, uh, that, that the unbeliever has but suppresses Romans 1, a knowledge that he has in common with the believer. To argue this way is very different from saying, let's assume that the Bible can be false and let's judge its truth on the higher authority of our senses and logic. And that's really how a lot of people want to say, like, you have your book, you, you know, you have scripture, but let's like reason outside of scripture. And he says, well, there's no logical reason, even if you're going to say logic and reason has to come from some higher order to make logic and reason even possible. And so, but for every argument, you know, you might have a skeptic that comes out with something else. But there are good reasons to believe what we believe. And so, how is a person described who believes the Son of God? What does it say in verse 10? Okay, so you've got these two external witnesses. It's really interesting, kind of even in the video, like sometimes there's an appeal of like a lot of skepticism comes internally, right? Um, With, you know, how do I know, you know, what I believe is even true? How can I even trust my senses? It's almost like, yeah, there's an agreement that we would have for with sinful minds. Like there is a sense where we skew our understanding of things just based on sin. Some would say that, you know, the skeptic would go for another reason that we can't even believe anything based internally um, on ourselves. So John goes to two external references and says there was this external witness of the spirit, uh, either at baptism or the birth, with the water, and the other one is the blood. But he does go with the internal argument and, and says that there's not only external confirmation, but there's internal confirmation. So what is the internal confirmation that we have of these truths? the witness of the holy spirit right and that's that third witness and so what does the holy spirit do internally of your understanding of the holy spirit so how does the holy spirit work within you not like the mechanics but what are what are the what things that, that scripture says about the holy spirit that we know to be true teaches and convicts you teaches and convicts you yeah so in John 14, uh, 26, right? Uh, actually, yeah, um, we read that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you." And that's to the disciples, right? Um, we can understand that the words of Scripture are written and true based on the affirmation of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in a little bit later. In John 16:8. When Jesus is talking more about the Spirit, He says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so you've got, again, this revealing of truth, this conviction of sin, these things, and, again, a strengthening and confirmation of our faith, that the Holy Spirit working within us over a lifetime Gets, uh, makes our faith stronger and stronger if we are, again, indeed walking in the Spirit. So you've got these external uh, witnesses and you have this internal witness that helps us in our understanding to know right, that um, what we believe is true. And so how then is a person described who does not believe in the Son? What does he say in verse 10? Okay, yeah, and more so than that, they're not only a liar, but they make, out, make God to be a liar, All right? So John doesn't pull any punches, and so um, he says, you know, you can believe what you want, but it's going to come down to you and God, right, in the end. That's, that's what we're, our understanding is, and so if it's between you and God, and you don't believe the things that God said is going to be true, then you're making God a liar, because it's him, through his spirit, that is testifying these things about his son, right? And many people kind of want to, like, lay in these, like, gray areas or kind of these squishy theological, you know, you know, Jesus is, is you know, he's a, he's a good teacher or he's all right with me, you know, you know, like, if you talk to somebody who says that they're spiritual and you ask them about Jesus, um... Some will, you know, they usually don't want to say anything specific about, like, do you believe he's the Messiah? Do you believe he's the Son of God? You push them on those terms, um, they have to make a determination. If you believe he's the Messiah and you believe he's the Son of God, then you believe that what he said about I am the way, the truth, and the life should be true. If you don't believe those things, then you are on grounds of judgment. And so, what does the testimony of the Son achieve? Verse 11. What does he say? So, if you believe that Jesus is the Son, what does that testimony mean? That we have eternal life, right? And that's pretty big. That's a pretty, a pretty big statement there, right? God just doesn't want us to believe um, some men who say some, say some things are true and, and just trust in that. He wants us to have an assurance of our faith based on several factors. One is the testimony of men. Those would be those that are writing scripture and we'll even see that those that are witnesses of Jesus. The testimony of God, right? The prophets, the confirmation of miracles, and then an internal testimony as well through the Holy Spirit, right? Our conviction of sin is something that reminds us that there is this moral order, there is this idea of justice, and there is something more than just chemical reactions that are happening within us. And so beyond that, right, he doesn't want us just to confirm that Jesus was God or Jesus was worthy of worship, right, which are all true, and that Jesus is a perfect example for us that we can look to as our, you know, as our example here on earth. But in addition to those things, we have the privilege, in spite of our unworthiness, right, to spend eternity with him. Eternal life is, right, if if it's what is the reward, what is the benefit of believing that Jesus is the Son of God, we have eternal life. A non-believer, like when he says that, a non-believer has eternal life but separate from God, to live forever too. What would you call that Like life forever or eternal life but separate from God? Are going to be just two? Yes. Well, to live from God. Yeah. Yeah, and we would almost say like eternal judgment yeah. in, in that sense. So yes, there is an eternity for us when when uh you know Jesus speaks of life, right? You can have a life abundant and life to the full, and that's kind of this idea of of in him, he is the water of life, he is the bread of life, there is full satisfaction. Um those that were out him will continue to thirst, and so this idea, right, that there is an eternity, but it's a different eternity for that. I think that's the basis of reality. It's that simple truth, that we are eternal <coughs> by nature as we are created in the image of God, and as Dennis is saying,
1: that reality is real one way or the other.
0: Yeah. And that's what skepticism and you know, minds that are hostile towards God are resisting that reality because of judgment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Who's the um... Stephen Hawking had written an art, a set of articles. It was interesting. I was reading the L.A. Times when I lived out in L.A. And um, they were writing a review of Stephen Hawking's, like, it was, like, his view of the world. And um, it was almost like it's a it was it's, a <laughs> it's for somebody who has a particular world view. It's an interesting way to think about things. But in the end, it just doesn't make sense. And this was, like, an L.A. Times, you know, writer writing about that. Um, And so you have to come up with, like, plausible arguments about how life makes sense, particularly coming from the worldview. But if you were a skeptic and you were like, maybe I'm just dreaming or maybe I'm a brain in the vat, like, well, what does it matter anyway? Like, does it, I mean, is there a point to that if that's all there is? Um, But if there is this idea of eternity and judgment, you know, that there are greater things, you know, that are at play than just these possibilities for that. And then he doesn't leave you just kind of hanging. He says, if you don't have the son, what does he say in verse 12? You don't have life, right? And so, you know, like to some people, right, that doesn't make different, a difference, right? They, they would look at their life now and say they're having a great life now. Like, you know, I have lots of friends and I'm, you know, I'm in the job that I want and I'm starting to, you know, be successful or I have a great family, But, like, all of those things are temporary, maybe even for the moment. But let's say, like, you carry that on, and, like, over your whole life, like, you had, you know, uh, these blessings, which are all, in, in retrospect, kind of the kindness of the Lord. But what about later? You know, really what we have here on earth is just a taste of life, but it's fleeting. It is not satisfying, as going back to, like, the words of Jesus, and it is not eternal right? And that's where John says, you might have life now, you might have prestige and power and the things that you appreciate. We all know that even those that have prestige and power are still looking for like more, you know, is that it? Is that, you know, is is there something more I'm looking for? Because there is this idea of eternity within us. And so in the end, you have no life. If you have, do not have the Son. And so God has given clear evidence of Christ, right? He was born of the water, right? He was, he was brought by water. He was um, here by the blood. He was crucified, and he was demonstrated by the Spirit, not only externally, but even internally for us as well. And if we deny these things, we deny God. And John can say this with such authority, right, because he was there with Jesus. If you go right back to the very beginning of 1 John Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete, right? His joy is that His readers can know that they have eternal life, this eternity with God, this peace with the Father, this protection from sin and suffering, this complete joy as he would describe it. One of the other witnesses, Peter, uh, writes in Second Peter, even kind of about his, his eyewitness, the fact that like he saw and heard and touched, that's what John said. You know, He says in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths," When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? He's like, you know, you might have heard other teachers talk about these great things or the way that the world really is, but he's like, we saw it. And we not only saw it, but we saw his majesty. Um most would understand this to believe um the um when he was on the uh the mount um and he was was that transfiguration? I'm like not incarnation, and glory, yeah, transfiguration, so thank you for the word, so, right, in the transfiguration, um, where they saw his majesty, verse 17, he says, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic uh, glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's almost saying that you know we were witnesses of this majesty, but the word was more true because it is born by the Holy Spirit. So believe these words to be true, as someone who witnessed these things, and John saying as somebody who was there and touched and saw. You know it, he wasn't just an apparition; like we touched and actually saw and ate with him. Um, there's more to it than just that, and you can have confirmation and affirmation of these things as well. So going back to 1 John 5 in verse 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request That we have asked of him. So what does John want his readers to know? Yeah. Yeah, and that they have, right, this idea of eternal life. You have eternal life. I mentioned this last week that um, this was, I said in this section, was the verse that my mom, uh, was really instrumental in my mom being saved. My stepdad, when he was... Uh, dating her at the time when I was in high school um, took her out I think in a, a motorcycle and they both had like the microphones on their headsets and they're talking as they're driving through the mountains or something she probably knows the story more specifically um, but he said you know do you know that you have eternal life and that's a pretty poignant question right there's this idea where it's like I think so and if you've ever asked somebody that question that's usually how people respond like I think so um, You know, I don't know. I hope I do. And so he said, well, Scripture says that you can know that you have eternal life. And he was referencing this verse here, that John wants us to know that we can have eternal life. And so why does he want us to know? Because false belief is built on doubt. Right? That was even going back to the garden where they knew these things to be true about what God had commanded them in the garden. But it was like, did God really say? And so skepticism tries to put an end to our knowledge and let kind of doubt rule in our lives. And that doubt can lead to fear. But God wants us to be confident in Him. We saw that when we looked at Hebrews 10 and 11 and building up of our faith. And he wants us to know that we can have eternal life. How is that? Through the knowledge of the Son of God. And how can we believe our knowledge or who the Son of God is? Well, there's based on the external testimony and also the internal testimony that we have within the Holy Spirit. And then he says something else, right? In verse 14, he says, what else does he want us to know? He wants us to know that Jesus hears, and we know that he knows that he hears us, which is kind of an interesting thing. But basically, he's saying that we have a living and active Savior, right? That we can ask something of the Lord, and that if we are asking in his will, that the Lord will respond. And that's how, you know, again, this idea of why do we pray? Prayer is asking the Lord, but also like putting ourselves within the will of the Lord to also see what the Lord is doing and when we see things that the Lord is doing, we have this again, confirmation. Like, I don't believe that the way this is the way that God should act, but I'm going to trust that, you know, God knows better than me. And then we see like the way that the Lord does respond in our lives and he has things that are greater than we can uh, ever understand. And imagine, right? His will is better than our will for our lives. And so if we ask of him, right, then he will respond by that, right? So being led by the Lord is not just a rational thought, like, should I pray for this person? This idea is, if the Lord puts that on your heart to pray for a particular person, then the Lord is putting that on your heart, because it is His will that you pray for that person. So that's kind of why He says this idea, you know, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Because... God is placing in our hearts things that we should pray for when we're praying within His will. And then we get to see how that responds. Like, I don't know why, I just feel like I need to pray for you. And the person might respond, thank you, I've just been burdened. Or, okay, and then you find out later on that's something in their lives that they were dealing with, and uh, we see the affirmation that God puts within us to, to pray for that person. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So it's just kind of unpacking that, he says, If a person does not commit a sin leading to death, what can he ask for? And we say that we can ask for life. In other words, we can ask for forgiveness of their sins. And so there's some debate whether this is spiritual death or physical death, um, meaning, like, is there a sin that causes, like, an eternal death, meaning, like, a damning prayer? Um, But I think more specifically, you know, John is just saying that there is sin that, like, that's the last sin that you could have. If you had a sin that led to death, like, there's no more praying for that person because they're already, like, being judged. But if they sin and they haven't died as a result of their sin, um, which, you know, you look at Proverbs and there's a lot of sin that can lead to death. Um, But if there is a sin that does not cause their death, then pray for that person because God has still granted them life and there is still time for them to be forgiven. It's kind of interesting like the way that even John speaks. He's almost hesitant when he's speaking, you know, uh, about, like, to those who commit sins to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. It's like kind of, he's almost, he's been so direct and confident and bold in the rest of his letter, but when he gets to this idea about praying for someone's forgiveness and the fact that the Lord would even um, spare this person for that, he kind of like, you see kind of like a way that he's, he's almost saying in a way that he does not want to be misunderstood. But if that person asks for life, it's kind of going back to like the main point, God will not hold back. He will generously give to all who desire it. Verse 18, for we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what's the what's characterized by a person born of God? Yeah. So you have this idea of, like, there, there shouldn't be a pattern of sin. And John talked about this in chapter 1 and even chapter 2, where he talks about this idea of, you know, if we keep on sinning, we make God a liar. Um, but that's the idea of having this, you know, Protracted, continual sin without repentance, something is amiss in that person's life. And so, someone who claims to be a, be a believer, that might be something not characterized by that person. But what's also promised for those who are born of God? What does he say at the end of verse 18? He will keep us. Yeah. Keep us, yeah. And keep us from, from who? Yeah. The evil. So, the evil exactly, right? I think yeah. There is an evil genius yeah. Just our minds. Satan. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, the Rene Descartes. He's he's the one that said, "I think, therefore I am," and that was almost like a way to try to disprove this idea. But he his whole his whole premise was to protect the, you know, God that, and the way that he goes to this idea is if you have a concept of a true and loving God, no evil genius would put a concept of a true and loving God into your mind. So a true and loving God must actually exist. So people have kind of said, well, you, you know, got kind, of, kind of countered that argument. But that was Rene Descartes trying to say, you know, um, like protect the sanctity of God and who God is and trying to prove God by these man-made philosophical arguments. Um, but anyway, so John says, though, that this person is protected from Satan. And then he, how does he characterize those that are in the world in verse 19? Yeah. And we talked about that a little bit last week, too, right? There's, again, this idea we understand that the way that people act and think and and even kind of their rational thoughts are based on a worldview that is dominated by Satan, dominated by sin. And so they are in the power of the evil one. But those who have eternal life, those who believe Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, we are, we, we have eternal life and are protected from the evil one. In the end, and again, we're going we're to go a little bit further into this idea of eschatology and, and, and future, uh, what that looks like a little bit later um, in other chapters, but just kind of suffice to say is this is what John says as he's kind of wrapping up his letter. And wrapping up his letter, we have these last couple of verses. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we see this idea, again, what is true, what is true, what is true. John wants us to know what is true. So what else are we given? In verse 20. Yeah. This idea of understanding, which is... uh, this word noose, the mind, right, is, is really how you translate it. God has come and has given us mind, or the mind of Christ is really what He's referring to. So we have this idea that like knowledge is facts, but understanding is reasoning. And so we can not just know facts uh, but also discernment, right? We can know about the Son of God and we can know him. We know that he came but we also know that he came and died for us, and we can have life within him. And about others in the world, he says that they're under the power of Satan. And when he says, what facts do we know about God, that he is true. So Jesus came, those that are uh, in the world are under the power of Satan, and that God, he is true. And we can know what is true versus what is false, and that's what John wants us to have this understanding, what is true and what is false. And so to understand our role in the world and why things happen the way they do and to have confidence in our le- living, but also confidence in our dying. We have hope that even in our death, that as we, if we have the ability, if, if a sin doesn't catch us, you know, um, or even something natural catches us, we have moments uh, where we are rational towards the time that we are about to die. And thinking about those things, we can look at eternity with hope and not with anxiety. Because we know about eternal life. Something greater awaits us. And then John ends his book you know, with this kind of in- interesting way. Why do you think John ends the book the way he does with that very last verse? Little children, keep away from idols. Yeah, he goes, like, you know, he says all of these kind of arguments and, and even kind of this poetic language in a way, and then he says, like, little children, keep away from idols. It's almost like a warning, or like a postscript or, like, I don't know, one last thought or did he finish his thought? And it's kind of, it just seems abrupt in a way or a little off topic, right? But, yeah, it, like going back to, like, the whole issue, right, is what will draw us away from from these truths, these knowing? It's the things that draw us, like, what's the purpose of an idol? I mean, an idol was something that was worshipped. So overtly, if you say, I worship an idol, you are not worshipping God. But the things that are susceptible to us that we almost don't understand that we are worshipping are the idols in our, our lives that sometimes we have a realization, like, I'm spending too much time with this one thing, or this thing is drawing me away from spending my time or understanding what the will of the Lord is, right? And so, these compromises that we have, these distractions, take us away from loving God, loving others, obeying His commandments, and feeling the joy and confidence of eternal life. All those things that John talked about in this last chapter, right? A false god, such as needing more money or prestige or security or better car or nicer clothes or any of these things, right, draw our hearts away from the things that matter most, which is the love of God. And then we see John as this kind of pastoral father, right, lovingly warns us from that allure, right? The things that we feel like we need, but do we? So, In life, we're going to face troubles, we're going to have doubts, and we might even be tempted with the skeptics to say, like, how do I know I'm not believing a lie? But we have prophetic witnesses that said the Messiah would come, and Jesus perfectly bore those out. We have the historical witnesses who wrote Scripture, and even them themselves said, I saw and I touched and I was there. I saw the resurrection, but don't even just take my word for it. Take the Scripture's word for it because it's even greater than my faulty count. It's the Holy Spirit that is writing these words. And then for ourselves, we also have the internal witness of the Spirit about the reliability of Scripture, the confirmation of Scripture to our external world. It's not like you read Scripture and you're like, well, that makes sense here, but it doesn't make sense out there. Like Scripture you know, reflects our world perfectly. And the shared witness that we even have together, right? We're all experiencing these things. If we're all individual vats in a brain, like, are we all different vats in a brain? Or you're experiencing this too? Or, you know, all of that. But we have this shared witness together that we're experiencing these things together. And we can take all of these things now. And so we just don't believe, quote, unquote, but we can know for certain. And that's where John wants to leave us. And that's where he wanted his readers to be left at the end of his letter.